Church, it's Christmas time, and I'm getting excited. I don't know about you, but I am excited. Uh, outside, of, outside of Easter, baby, this is, this is our time, right? This is our time. So glad you're with us this morning, especially if it's your first time, first time in a long time. Uh, we are excited that you're with us today, man, especially um, first-time visitors. You're a very special guest. Again, hopefully all the decorations and all the lights putting you in a little bit in the spirit. Thanks to all of those who spent so much time this week working on turning this place into a winter wonderland. There was a team of people here all day, every day, kind of throwing up Christmas everywhere they went. And so, uh, sorry, bad, bad analogy, but it looks great. Whatever you did, you did a great job. So thank you so much for that. All the, the songs and the, the drama and all the... All the decorations, it get me more excited about this season as well as about this new series that we're going to be kicking off this morning called uh, He Shall Be Called. For the first three Sundays of this month, along with Christmas Eve, we're going to be looking at a well-known little Old Testament passage that was actually written 700 years before Jesus was even born. But it speaks so much to who was born on that one fateful night. It tells us a lot about that little baby. So I'm excited to jump into that series with you. Every parent out there knows the frustration, they know the fear and the fun that comes along with naming their children. Parents, are you with me on this? I remember that struggle very well. We went around and around and around when it came to picking out names for our two little girls. Some names were immediately dismissed because they just didn't sound right. For some reason, Becca was not a fan of Tomasita. It's like, <laughs> for your namesake, right? Come on. Some names were taken off the table because one of the many teachers in our family had a student that they associated that name with, and the student was the worst student in the world. So you couldn't have that name. And some names were tossed out because they were just a tad bit odd. I'm a huge car guy and a lover of chocolate, but calling my kid Audi or Hershey just didn't, it just didn't seem right. So I threw those out as well. For a while, Bailey, our oldest, was actually going to be Callie. She was our little Malibu baby. Then she was going to be Taylor. Then for a few, a few weeks, her name was going to be Ashlyn. Uh, we ended up changing it to Bailey just a few days before she was born. Uh, but that's way ahead of the game. I've learned that some people actually wait until they see their baby to name their baby. I didn't realize that, that babies are like beanie babies that, that come with a name tag right on their ear. And it says this is what their name should be. Like, oh, wish I would have known that ahead of time. But in all seriousness, finding the right name, it's something that all parents agonize over, isn't it? And we care deeply about names because God cares deeply about names. Names play a significant role in the story of Scripture, and they're often given for very, very specific reasons. Take Moses, for example. Moses' name means to be drawn out, which makes perfect sense given the fact that he was literally drawn out of the Nile River by his adopted mother. You also see this with Samuel. Samuel's name means because I asked the Lord. What a great name. Well, and his mother gave him that name because she did ask the Lord for years and years and years for this child. So when he came, that name just seemed so appropriate. Now, other people in the scripture, they had their name changed by God because something new, something different was about to happen. Abram became Abraham. Jacob became Israel. Simon became Peter. Saul became Paul. This name change signified a change in their relationship with God, a change in their calling, a change in their purpose. You see, names matter. 
And when it comes to names in the Bible, we need to keep in mind, they have not been chosen accidentally. They've not been chosen haphazardly. They haven't been chosen because they sound cool. They've been chosen because they mean something. They've been chosen very intentionally, very purposefully. See, a person's name tells us a lot about that person as well as a lot about that person's calling. And nowhere do we see that more than as it pertains to Jesus. We all know that the baby lying in the manger had a name. It's a name that even the guys in Talladega Nights knew, right? Eight pounds, six ounce, newborn, infant, baby, Jesus. Jesus. His name was Jesus. And that name in and of itself is incredibly significant because that name means the Lord saves. And given what that little baby would do 33 years later for us, man, that name fits absolutely perfectly. But did you know? That hundreds of years before that baby was born, hundreds of years before he was called Jesus, he was actually given several other names. Call them middle names, call them nicknames, call them surnames. But in Isaiah 9, 700 years before the baby was born, this prophet of God gives us four names for this baby. Four names that should radically change the way we see and understand him. I honestly believe these four names have the power to change our our view and understanding of Christ, but also our experience of Christmas as a whole. So I'm excited over the next few weeks to share these names with you. Knowing a little bit about the context in which we first received these names is going to go a long way for us and help a lot. So what happened in Isaiah? What was Isaiah experiencing? Who was he writing to and why? Here's how I would summarize it. God's people, this this group that God had hand-selected out of the world so they could go back in to bless and serve and save the world, well, they were at odds. They'd fallen on hard times. They'd been fighting with each other, as most siblings do, but they've also been fighting with their father, with God. And as a result, this once great nation, this once unified group of people, they've literally been split in two. There are now two nations, two groups of people. We have Israel and Judah. See, they're divided, they're distracted, and as a result, they're both going to be destroyed by different nations, Assyria and Babylon. The world as they knew it was falling apart. The church as they knew it was struggling to stay together. Violence was running rampant. Outside nations were wreaking havoc on their nation. The future was uncertain at best and terrifying at worst. Life was crazy for these people. And if only we could relate. If only we could relate Oh, wait, I watched the news last night. We can relate. It's our world. Their world is our world. Well, in this moment, in this moment where the the people of God are starting to question the presence of God, they're starting to question the promises of God, God shows up. He's got something to say to them. And this is what he says. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, God humbled the land of Zeppelin and the land of Nephtali, But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. If you have no idea what's going on, don't worry. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation or enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It will all be destroyed and be used for fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. 
And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. See, God had a message for his people in the middle of their mess. And God has a message for his people today in the middle of their mess. The prophet's message is simply this. God is going to turn the tables. He's going to rebuild the nation. He's going to repair broken hearts and restore hope. He's going to overcome every obstacle that his people face and every enemy that's standing against them. Out of the darkness, out of the distress of that moment, God's going to usher in and bring about a brand new day. Out of that suffering, God is going to birth forth new songs. Out of that sadness, as he did in the time of Gideon, that's the whole Midian reference, he's going to bring about tremendous gladness. In other words, God is going to do away with terrorist groups that kill innocent people. In other words, God is going to do away with the hatred that causes someone to shoot up a pregnancy center. In other words, God is going to do away with injustice and inequality. Everything that burdens us and breaks us down, he's going to do away with it all. And not just for his people, but for all people, especially the people that you and I tend to look down on. That's that whole Neftali reference. You don't really go to Neftali. It's a weird town. But God's about to break forth a great light in that little town, as well as every other town around it. But how's he going to do this? How's he going to overcome all of this darkness? How is he going to pull this off? A little baby boy. The birth of a child. See, God is going to overcome death through a tiny new little life. He's going to put an end to wars by having something stir in Mary's womb. He's going to destroy hostility through the nativity. I love that line. I just laughed when I wrote that down. I was like, that's just a great line. <laughs> you, you don't agree. He's going to destroy hostility through the nativity. Okay, there we go. Okay. Whew. See, he's going to overcome everything that's happening down here in the world by coming down into the world. He's not going to come as some angry, overpowering, aggressive military leader. He's going to come as this helpless little baby boy, humble little baby boy. Now, I imagine if you were hearing these words for the first time, 700 years before it actually happened, you would have every right to be thoroughly confused by this. What are, what are you talking about? I don't, this doesn't make any sense to me. Like It's going to be God, but it's going to be a baby going to be God. He's going to be our Savior, but he's going to have a dad. He's going to come from David's lineage. He's going to rule in the Jerusalem throne, but his light's going to shine in Galilee. This just doesn't make any sense to me. It seems impossible, doesn't it? It seems implausible until you hear about the incarnation. The incarnation makes sense of this. All of it seems crazy until you hear about Christmas. See, Isaiah's words make perfect sense in light of what happened that lonely night in Bethlehem. His prophecy sheds this incredible light on exactly who it is that's lying in that little tiny manger. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Isaiah is talking about Jesus. He's talking about the hope of heaven that has come down to the earth. 
He's talking about the one who's going to redeem, repair, and restore the entire world. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name is Jesus. But you know what? He's got a few other names. And Isaiah and the Father, they want you to know Jesus by name. His name is Wonderful Counselor. His name is Mighty God. His name is Everlasting Father. His name is Prince of Peace. Again, call them nicknames, surnames, middle names. These are powerful names that each mean something significant. So for the next few weeks, we're going to dive headfirst into each of these names. I haven't seen this yet. That, John, that just looks awesome. I love it. Love it. Let's dive into this name real fast. Let's just start this morning. I once heard about a couple of doctors in a psychiatric ward that were kind of battling it out one day. They got in a fight. They were arguing over, of all things, the color of the new carpet. One thought it was too uh, depressing. The other thought it was too obnoxious. They kept raising their voices and yelling at each other till a patient in the psychiatric ward, a man who had seen more therapists than anybody else, interrupted him by saying, you two are crazy. Y'all need some counseling. And with a smile on his face, he walked away. But in a way, that man was right. He was actually describing all of us. We're all a little bit crazy, aren't we? We all need a little bit of counseling, don't we? I love what author Augustine Burroughs said. It's best to think of your head as an unsafe neighborhood. Don't go there alone. <laughs> or how about Johnny Carson? In Hollywood, if you don't have a shrink, people think you're crazy. You see, we all need counseling in one form or another for one thing or another. From being strung out to just being stressed out. From needing a little bit more hope to just needing a little bit more help. We all need some counsel from time to time, don't we? We always assume that counseling is just for crazy people. But if we're completely honest, well, we fit that description pretty well. I used to ask students out at Pepperdine to, for one week, record every thought they had and everything they said to themselves. And if you're like, wait, I don't talk to myself. Well, you didn't just say that out loud. So you do. Anyway, okay. But record the things you say to yourself. And I tell you what, at the end of the week, you wouldn't want anyone to read that. In fact, you probably wouldn't want to read it either. We say some crazy things to ourselves. We think some crazy things about ourselves, don't we? We all need help. But where do we go for it? Where do we go for this guidance that we need? Where do we go for good counsel? Whether it's marriage or parenting, finances, friends, intimacy, illnesses, where do you go for help? I can tell you where a lot of people go. It's called the great God of Google. Right? Who needs God when you got Google? Just type in your question, share your struggle, ask Siri to help you with the problem that you're having, and everything you need to know right there on your computer screen. Who cares? You have absolutely no idea who wrote that. Who cares that you're banking your hope on some complete stranger? Who cares that it's based on some computerized search engine? The great God of Google knows all. Maybe a little theatrical, but we do rely heavily on it, don't we? If we don't look online, we do look to a couple other things. There's self-help books. That section in the bookstore seems to be getting larger and larger. We could also look to talk show hosts. I mean, Oprah's got advice, Ellen's got some advice, and Dr. Phil always has something to say. There's a lot of people out there that want to counsel you. The problem I have with those folks is they tend to say that which sells. They tend to say that which increases the ratings. So it might not be great counsel. It's just counsel that makes a buck or two. Or 10 billion. But luckily for us, there are other options. When it comes to good counsel, we don't simply need to go online and we don't have to just talk to a talk show host. We can actually get counsel from 
a counselor. Imagine that. From a counselor. In fact, according to recent statistics, nearly one in four Americans has seen or is currently seeing a therapist, a counselor, or a mental health advisor. And I want us to increase that number because I'm a huge fan of therapy. Okay. Sounded weird as I said it out loud. It looked better on the paper. In my seminary, I took one class on counseling. And the first day of the class, I kid you not, the professor comes in and he says, you have one thing to learn through this entire semester. And the faster you learn it, the better we all will be. You ready for this one thing? I'm like, yeah, man, give it to us and be deep. The one thing I want you to learn from your counseling class, pastors, is this. Refer. Refer to the professionals. Send people to counselors because you are not one. Then we went and like got some lunch. It was like, this is the best class ever. <laughs> but I, I can't compare to a counselor that spent 3,000 hours in supervised training. I had one class. I'm not, a, I'm not a paid professional. These people have devoted their lives to figuring out how to give you good counsel. That's why we worked hard to bring a counseling center under the banner of West Bowles. Nippenberg Patterson and Associates, a family counseling center, now exists in and operates out of this church because I'm a big fan of therapy. One out of every four, let's make it two or three out of every four. We all need good counsel, don't we? We all need help from time to time. But here's the thing. According to Isaiah... One of Jesus' names is Wonderful Counselor. That's his name. I mean, if that's true, if that's who he is, if that's what he's known for, if that's what he does best, don't you think we should go to him? Don't you think that at least in addition to the other resources, or maybe before all the other resources, we should at least go to him for counsel? He's the Wonderful Counselor. The word used there for wonderful is the same word that you read in Judges 13, 18. But in Judges, the description is this. It says beyond understanding. Beyond understanding and wonderful, the exact same word. Both, both authors just kind of use them a little bit differently. So, so here, this baby, this little baby lying in that manger, it's not just the baby. It's actually a counselor, a great advisor, a helper whose understanding is way beyond your understanding. That's who's lying in that barn. And here's how we could be called that. Here's why he's called that. The three characteristics that, that typically make a great counselor a great counselor are perfectly embodied in Jesus. They are perfectly seen in that little baby. Let me walk you through them. Think about this. The first characteristic of a good, a good counselor, it's expertise. When you're looking for someone to help you, you need to look to someone who's an expert on the topic, someone who's a master of the subject matter. We've all had that awkward moment, haven't we, where we got some good advice from someone who had no idea what they were talking about, someone who had no clue what we were going through. I remember with some students, uh, and I used to love this, and by love this, I mean hate this, when an 18-year-old student would give me parenting advice. Like, Bailey would be crying, and the student would come up, you should try this. Like, really? You think I should try this? Interesting. How about you get a girlfriend before you tell me how to raise my offspring? That's why I'm not at Pepperdine anymore. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that you can only speak into someone's life if you've walked the same exact road they've walked. That would make it impossible for any of us to ever speak to anyone, right? But doesn't it help? Isn't it nice? Wouldn't you prefer to have your counselor know what they're talking about and know what you're going through? When someone speaks out of a place of ignorance, 
Now you could care less. But when they speak out of a place of expertise, you start to care a lot more. Now it's tempting, I know, to think that Jesus is ignorant, that Jesus just doesn't get it. It's tempting to think that, that he can't relate to us. I mean, he wasn't married, so he never had to deal with a wife. He didn't have any kids, he didn't have to deal with that. He didn't have to make a house payment. His car never broke down. His Hall of Fame quarterback didn't get hurt. He wasn't tempted by weed or online porn. He just doesn't get it. He can't sympathize with us. He can't relate. Wrong. Here's the amazing thing about the wonderful counselor. He understands perfectly. He knows exactly what you're going through. The author of Hebrews says it this way. Since the children have flesh and blood, since we have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it wasn't the angels that he helped out. It was us. It was Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are also being tempted. Later on, he says this in chapter 4, we do not have a priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in the exact same way that we have just as we are. You see, Jesus wanted desperately to help us, to guide us, to lead us, to counsel us, and so he became just like us. He became just like us. This is what Christmas is all about. This is what we celebrate and marvel at every December 25th. God suddenly had a face, and it uniquely enabled him to face everything that we face. God suddenly had two little feet, and it uniquely enabled him to walk through Everything that we walk through, from suffering to loss to temptation to joy to hope to revenge to discouragement, disappointment, abandonment to awkward family get-togethers to a great meal that makes you want to kind of unbutton your top button, right? I mean, Jesus gets it all because he lived through it all. He gets it all because he experienced it all. This little baby boy that we sing about, well, he would grow up to know exactly what it feels like to lose a loved one. This little baby boy would grow up to know exactly what it feels like to be misunderstood by his family. This little baby boy would grow up to know exactly what it feels like to, to watch his friends make stupid decisions. This little baby boy would grow up to know exactly what it feels like to be in a world where evil just runs rampant. What makes him the wonderful counselor is that he gets it all because he walked through it all for us. You with me? That makes sense? What makes him the wonderful counselor is that he gets it all because he's experienced it all. You don't think there were beautiful women during Jesus' day? You, you don't think there were drugs and alcohol in Jesus' day? You don't, you don't think there were things to buy and stuff to try? You don't think there were opportunities to get rich quick or sacrifice your morals? Of course they were. Although the dates have changed, the time is still the same. He walked in our shoes. More than that, he walked in our flesh. He knows exactly what we're going through. So when he talks about love, when he talks about lust, when he talks about heaven and hell and life and death and fulfillment and, and frustration, when he talks about all that, it's not his best guess. It's not some speculation that he's making. Those words are literally birthed out of his experience as a human. All those words are birthed out of his expertise because he was just like us. He's an expert, y'all. He gets you because he was just like you. But in addition to being an expert, a good counselor also has to be empathetic, don't they? 
they got to care. they got to care about you and care about what you're going through. They basically have to be the complete opposite of this guy. Watch this clip. Could switching to GEICO really save you 15% or more on car insurance? Does a former drill sergeant make a terrible therapist? And that's why yellow makes me sad, I think. That's interesting. You know what makes me sad? You do! Maybe we should chug on over to Mamby Pamby land where maybe we can find some self-confidence for you, you jackwagon! Tissue? Right, baby. GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. See, the Bible actually gives us examples of counselors who were just like that. And this poor guy named Job knew them all by name. After experiencing great loss and great hardship, this guy Job, he gets some counsel from the people that are closest to him. First, he gets counsel from his wife. You know what his wife's counsel was? Curse God and die, old man. That's great counsel. Then his friends try their hat at the whole counseling thing. They come over and they say, you know what, Job, all the bad stuff you're experiencing, it's your fault. Even better counsel. Maybe go back to wife. This isn't great counsel at all. It was the opposite of great counsel because those people didn't care. So they just wanted to hear themselves talk or they just wanted to hear Job stop talking. But they didn't care about him. See, a good counselor sees beyond the pain and beyond the problems and they see the person. Not only do they see the person, but they care deeply about that person. And nowhere do we see that concern more than in Christ. See, he didn't come down to us to simply learn more about us. He came down to us because he cares deeply about us. John 13, 1. Just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world, go back home. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them all the way to the end. Romans 8, 38, 39. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Revelation 1, 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. To him be glory and honor and praise forever and ever. See, knowing what life is like for us, well, that's one thing. But caring deeply about us, caring deeply about our life, that, that's another thing completely. Not only does Jesus understand our pain and our problems, but you know, living 33 years on this earth will, will give you some expertise into pain and problems. But he cares deeply about our pain and our problems. Now he's like, whoo, good riddance to pain and problems. I was a human for a little while and now I'm not like that anymore. Whoo. He still cares about those who are still like that. He still cares about his brothers and his sisters. He would know exactly what it feels like because he was just like it. See, only love would motivate a God to leave heaven and to enter into humanity. Only love would motivate a king to leave his palace and start walking through our pits. Only love would motivate the creator to subject himself to the ways of the creation. Only love would do that. Nothing else motivates you to do that. The case is true in our lives as well, isn't it? Love compels you to do some crazy things, doesn't it? Like spend money you don't have, act a fool, write little love letters, talk all sweet on the phone. Love compels you to do crazy things. Love compelled God to become a baby boy. It compelled him to do the craziest thing. But he was compelled because he cares, you see? So he knows what it's like to be us. He cares deeply about us. But beyond that, our God can help. 
A God, a good counselor or a good God is not just an expert. They're not just someone who's empathetic, but they actually can empower you to change. Right? A good counselor has the ability to take you from point A and to move you all the way to a better point. Point Z, if that's what it takes. A good counselor wants to free you from your fears and from your failures. And once again, Christ perfectly embodies this. But if you want to hear about this power of this great counselor, well, you're going to have to come back next week. Because next week we hear a new name, another name of this little baby, and that name is Mighty God. He was also called the Mighty God. So you think your therapist has a unique way of helping you out of a tough time? Yeah, just wait until you hear what the Mighty God can do for you. You see, God not only sent his son to us, but he wants us to know him by name. Doesn't a relationship change when you know someone by name? And doesn't it change even more when you know some of their nicknames, some of their insider-like pet names? Your intimacy goes deeper with the more names you know about that person. So God, at Christmas time, invites us to know his son, Jesus, by his name, by several names, in fact. And this morning, I hope that you have learned his name is Wonderful Counselor. In a world where the experts disagree, in a world where the politicians talk in circles, in a world where the know-it-alls prove very quickly they don't know it all, in a world that's full of heartache, in a world that's full of headache, God sent his son to us to counsel us through our lives. And he's able to counsel us in a way that nobody else can. Let me give you a couple of real quick practical suggestions for how to carry this out into practice. Uh, a mentor of mine once said, uh, a good chance 95% of your church will agree with everything you say. But there's also a good chance 95% of your church will have no idea what to do about it. And so I want to remedy that this morning. What do we do with this information? Now that we know Jesus by name is wonderful counselor, what do we do? A uh, few suggestions. This is not earth-shattering stuff, just a couple of, couple of reminders. In the back of every Bible is a resource called the concordance, especially study Bibles. What they do is they list off key words that we experience and encounter throughout our life. And they've done the hard work for us of, of taking the passages that speak directly to that word or that situation, and they put them in order for you. So this week, I want you to think of what words and what areas of your life do you need some counsel? Is it love? Is it lust? Is it patience? Is it family? Is it children? Is it fear? Is it anxiety? What are those words? Then I want you to flip back to a Bible. If you don't have a good one, come find me. We'll get you one. And I want you to read through all the verses that are listed underneath that word. I want you to spend time listening to the wonderful counselor speak to you through those verses. I want you to figure out what is he trying to say to me right now and how is he trying to strengthen and guide me through this counsel. So one of the ways is through your concordance. Another way that you can get counsel from the wonderful counselor is just to talk to him. Prayer. If his name is wonderful counselor, if his nature is that of counseling, if that's his desire, don't you think he wants to do it for you? Don't you think he's waiting for an opportunity to do that for you? So this week, ask him what he would like for you to do. Ask him if he could give you some advice on a certain situation. Ask him if he would speak some wisdom and insight into a certain situation for you. Tell him what you need. Tell him what you're going through. Tell him where you are in life and just say, speak to me. See, in our Holy Spirit series next year, we're going to learn God is still speaking today, just as he was back in the olden days. He still wants to talk to you. He still wants to guide you. He still wants to speak life into you. He still wants to counsel you. So this week, ask him, help me, God, help me with this situation. Tell me what you want me to do. And then wait patiently and let him, let him give you some great counsel. God wants you to know him by name. And one of his names is Wonderful Counselor. Let's stand and sing this one final song that hopefully will really bring this all home.